Hello, and welcome to EIP Talks, a podcast focusing on patent news, trends, and insights. I'm Joshua Rosenberg, I'm a legal commentator, and EIP have asked me to host the first episode of their podcast today. I'm joined at EIP's offices in London by Gary Moss, the firm's head of litigation. Gary qualified as a solicitor in 1977, and he's been a partner at EIP for 10 years now. He's probably best known for winning the huge Unwired Planet case in the UK Supreme Court last year. And that's going to be the main topic of our conversation today. But before we discuss that, I'd like to ask you, Gary, about intellectual property more generally, what it is, why it's so important, and so on. Should we start with how you got involved in this line of work in the first place? Hello, Joshua, and welcome to EIP. I got into it um, through luck uh, and being in the right place at the right time, I suppose. After I qualified many moons ago, I joined a firm that was then called Clifford Turner, which is now part of Clifford Chance. And I went to be a hotshot corporate lawyer. The only problem was that I decided after a few months that I hated corporate law. So I went to the head of corporate law and said, I think I've made a mistake and I think I need to leave. And he said to me, don't leave. I'll see if there's a position for you in our litigation group, because I indicated that that's what I really wanted to do. He came back to me and said, unfortunately, there's not a place in the litigation group. But one of the partners has started a department or a group dealing with things called patents, trademarks and what have you. And he said he could do with some extra help. Would you be interested? And I said, yes. And the rest is history, as they say. Did you know anything about patents in those days? I didn't know very much about patents. When I was qualifying um, as a trainee, I did some work for Chanel in relation to trademarks. And that was, I thought, great fun, which was one of the reasons why I realized that I wanted to do more litigation than the corporate law. Is it really fun? Because it sounds, well, it's obviously intellectual, it's intellectual property, but it's always sounded a bit esoteric to me. Um, well, it is fun uh, and it can be fun. Back when the time when I started, a lot of the intellectual property work that one did was running down to the court to get interim injunctions and then running off and serving them. And it was just about the time that something came out called an Anton Pillar order, which is a civil search and seize order. And there was a lot of legal developments around that at the time. And it was quite fun. Patents are all about new inventions, new developments, aren't they? But the concept is very old. The, yeah, the concept is very old. The first uh, recorded or generally regarded as the first recorded patent law was the Venetian Republic in about 1477. Um, the UK, or I should say England, uh, adopted its first patent law. Well, it's a, a question of whether it adopted in 1623 or 1624. I, I won't argue over that. <laughs> well, the reason is that the legal term or the parliamentary term ran from March to March. And therefore, 1623 was actually passed in February 1624. Um, but it was in the statute of monopolies. And, and patents were really, at the time, of a way of the king, the um, monarch, raising money. So they used to grant patents to their friends or to their courtiers for certain things. So you'd have a patent for salt, for example. And that person would have the monopoly for salt. And that was regarded by Parliament as obviously affecting the welfare of the populace and parliament lobbied to repeal it and it was repealed in the statute of monopolies in 1623 but the one thing that they said was that patents would remain for those bringing into the kingdom useful arts as it were 
Because that's the important thing. It has to be useful. It has to be new. You couldn't patent salt as such at the moment. No, you, for a patent to be valid or for the invention to merit a patent, it has to be novel. It has to involve an inventive step and it has to be uh, capable of industrial application. And it can't be obvious? No, that's that what I mean by an inventive step. Uh, it just cannot be a workshop improvement to what is already known. And these days, what is already known is anything published anywhere in the world, or made available, I should actually say, is the actual term used in the Patents Act. And what is made available itself uh, can be quite a complex question. You presumably have to find somebody who goes around searching all over the place to see if anybody's had the idea and made it public already. Um, yes, we do. There are people, patent searchers, who are well accustomed to doing this. Obviously, there is a ready database of prior patents, but that is only about one-tenth of the story. Something can be made available because it's published in a magazine, published in a learned article, or because somebody made something and then you can tell how it's made, and that would be uh, ranking as made available. What's the patent bargain? The patent bargain is what it's all really based on and even goes back to um, the Venetian law of 1477. What the patent bargain is, is that society or the government says to inventors, if you come along with a new invention, you get a monopoly for a given period of time. In most of the world at the moment, it's 20 years. And at the end of that monopoly, the invention becomes freely available to the public and therefore science advances in that way. And how do inventors feel about that when they're new to this field? You know, they've done all this work, they've invented it, and in 20 years or less, if they're spending time testing a, a medication or something like that, they have to give it away for nothing. Well, I mean, that is the patent bargain. You, you've got the 20 years to make your money, as it were, or to exploit your invention or to license it in any way you want. It can cause problems in things, as you say, in uh, pharmaceuticals, because it's generally reckoned that it takes at least 10 years to go from lab bench to uh, a product which you might put on the market. And it can take longer sometimes because you've got to do all the research, you've got to scale it up, you've got to do the clinical trials, and then sometimes you have to go back to the drawing board, etc. But there is something called patent extensions, and certainly under European law, you had what are known as supplementary protection certificates, which means that in the context of pharmaceuticals and life science inventions, you can extend the term for a further five years. Okay, I want to move on to the Unwired Planet case, but before we go into any detail, I want you to explain uh, some of the terminology, because there are quite a few acronyms that floated before my eyes as I was reading the law reports. Um, first of all, ETSI, uh, E-T-S-I, what does that stand for? Well, before I explain that, I should just say that this particular area is replete with anacronyms um, or fofflers, as we call them, four or five letter anacronyms. And that's one of the problems I always have with some of my uh, more technical colleagues. But ETSI stands for, excuse my French, but the European Telecom Standards Institute. And what is that organisation, the European Telecom Standards Institute, what does it do? Well, it promotes, sounds obvious, but it promotes standards in the area of telecommunications. But what happens is that prior to about 1980, each country had its own telecom standards, and then you get the problem of interoperability. 
So under the aegis of the European Commission, although it's not a European Commission body, but uh, encouraged by the European Commission and also the governments of Europe, Etsy came together to form one body to uh, generate standards for the whole of the of Europe, basically. So instead of having a, a British standard and a French standard and a German standard and having to make them interoperable, there was now one European standard. And that was re primarily responsible, I think, for the, um, the very first generation of mobile telecommunications. It produced one standard, uh, the GSM standard. Because if your mobile phone is manufactured by one company and my mobile phone is manufactured by another company uh, and I'm in London and you're in Paris and we want to call one another then obviously the phones have to literally speak to one another and so they have to have the same standards. Basically, yes, and that was the um, main thrust behind it. If you have one standard, I mean, what you have to understand, and this is where it does get technical, that all around us at the moment there are radio waves um, and your telephone has to pick up and say, oh, that message is for me and therefore I've got to connect to the base station or you're already connected to the base station, but I've got to pick up that message. And it's a series of ones and zeros. So the question is, how does your telephone know or how does your handset know that that message is for you? And if you multiply that by millions of telephones throughout the world um, or, or even in the UK or even in a small area like we are now, there has to be a standard way of communicating that each phone will recognise and also the base station has to be able to recognise your communications. Okay, so Etsy is one of several standards-setting organisations, uh, and that's another possible acronym, I think. Uh, but um, these organisations don't decide whether a patent is essential or valid or anything like that. They set standards, but they don't decide on the validity of patents. No, they don't. They don't even decide, actually, whether a standard is really essential. The way the system works is what the standard-setting organisations try to do is to encourage the brightest and the best to come forward with their proposals as to how to solve the problem, these technical issues. And the companies that are members of the various standard-setting organisations, and in, in case of Etsy, it would be household names, some you might not recognise, but it'd be the Ericsson's, the Nokia's, the Qualcomm's, Huawei, etc. They'd all be members of Etsy and they'd set up a working party to say, right, we're going to go for the next generation of communication. And each company would send its bright and its best technical people there to make proposals as to how they might solve this. Now, one of the advantages, if you've got a, a proposal which includes an invention, you'd file a patent on it. The problem is, of course, if you've got a patent on it, in theory, uh, you might be able to uh, block other people using it, which would go totally against the standard-setting organisation's thrust. So that's when you come to the IPR policy, and that's when you come to the other issues that we talk about. Well, let, let, let's move on to one of those issues, because mm -hmm. um, you mentioned very briefly uh, the question of whether a patent was essential. And, and we now talk about standard essential patents or SEPs. So what is a standard essential patent? Okay, a standard essential patent uh, is one where you cannot operate the standard without using the technology which is covered by the patent. And that is one of the crucial elements about the whole litigation in this area. Because basically, 
what goes on in your handset is written in the software and you can't tell if you're a patent holder what is happening there. The way that you prove infringement is by proving that your patent is essential to the standard. Ergo, if your phone is standard compliant, you must be using the patent. And these standard essential patents are essential. They're vital. They're very valuable. They, they are very valuable because under the SSO's intellectual property policies, um, it's usually, well, sorry, it, it is uh, part of the policy that the patent owner should re receive a fair remuneration for the use of its standard essential patent. Well, let's talk about fair remuneration because uh, another acronym to, to learn is FRAND, F-R-A-N-D. And what does that stand for? FRAND stands for fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. In some other areas, it's, and especially in America, it's sometimes called RAND, on the basis that there's not really a distinction between fair and reasonable, but it comes to the same thing in effect. And what it means is the SSOs don't say what is the correct, in monetary terms, what is the correct remuneration for the use of anybody's patent. What happens is that when you make a declaration of essentiality, certainly to Etsy, the declaration contains an undertaking that you will grant a patent on fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. Now, it has to be said that Etsy has two main proponents in it. You'll have those that own the patents, but you'll also have those that use the patents. And trying to find accommodation between the two can be quite difficult. Um, so they use this term FRAND. It's well accepted now. But Etsy or no other standard-setting organisation actually says what FRAND is. So it's left to the parties to negotiate what is the FRAND remuneration. That's a pretty standard thing in business. You've got a buyer and a seller, and they've got to agree on a price, and they argue over what the price is. And you've got Etsy, the Telecommunication Standards Institute, which is one of these standard-setting organisations, in the middle. And you've got them arguing over what a fair price is. Is that it? It is, but the thing that makes this different is that if you've got a piece of uh, something to sell and I want to buy it, if I can't agree the price with you, you won't give me the item to sell <laughs> that you're selling. And the same normally with a patent license. If you've got license for a pharmaceutical or you've got a patent on a pharmaceutical and I want to license it, you come along and say, this is my price. And I might say the price is too high and I'll offer you so-and-so, and somewhere one would hope, and one normally does, one would meet in the middle. The difference with a standard essential patent is that the patentee can't necessarily stop the licensee or the putative licensee from using the patent. Let me just go back. In the pharmaceutical stage, if we couldn't agree the price, but you said, I'm going to use it anyway, I'd say, right, well, I'll go off and get an injunction against you. That is not quite so straightforward in the case of an SEP because the patentee has given an undertaking to license on FRAN terms and the implementer, handset company or the manufacturer of the base stations will say, well, I've offered you a fair price and you won't accept it, So, but you, you can't then get an injunction against me. And is this where we get into these wonderful terms holding up and holding out. And there's a difference between the two, isn't there? There is. There is a distinct difference. Hold up. The reason why Etsy 
has an IPR policy is to a large measure, impo- not imposed, but encouraged by the competition directive directorate of the European Union. And the problem with a standard essential patent is, in theory, if you get a patent that is incorporated into the standard, you can then use it to literally hold up the rest of the world by saying, right, well, in order to use this, I demand excessive royalties. And of course, if you've got 100 patents, actually, for any standard, there's probably thousands of patents, but let's take a chance of 100 patents, and everybody demands 1%, pretty soon you're going to be paying royalties to the value of the product itself, which is ridiculous, and that's known as royalty stacking. So there's that problem, and that's hold up. Now, in order to avoid that, that is why you have the undertaking to say, I'll offer a license, I'm prepared to grant a license on FRAN terms. On the other side, you get hold out. If the implementer is able to use, as a practical matter, the technology, because it's all set out in the standard and the implementer knows what it has to do and what ones and noughts its uh, handset must put out in order to be able to be recognized by the worldwide system, then it's got no incentive to pay. And if it thinks it can drag out the negotiations and then drag out the litigation, it can go for years and years without paying, and that is holdout. So you've got these two sides. If they don't behave in a fair and reasonable way, the standard essential patent owner can engage in holdout activities, threatening an injunction, as you say. Uh, on the other hand, the infringer, if the infringer behaves unreasonably, uh, that's holding out, and, and they're at arm's length and they don't meet. And, and this sort of thing happens, obviously, in the real world. But it's funny, I've never met uh, anybody involved in the industry who would say that they aren't a willing licensor and a willing licensee, and the suggestion that they're practicing hold up or hold out is anathema to them. But in the real world, it does take a long time to agree these licenses, and the negotiations for them can go on for very many years. And in the end, and normally it's the patent holder, gets fed up and says, okay, I'm going to court. And that is basically what happened in the Unwired Planet situation. Okay, well, tell me about Unwired Planet, because that was your client. Uh, Great name. What are they? Unwired Planet uh, was, I mean, there is a pejorative term, which is called a non-practicing entity, uh, or an NPE, another acronym. Uh, An NPE is usually reserved for, well, it is reserved for an entity that it doesn't actually manufacture any of the products involved in this, but is a patent holding company and it's interested purely in licensing those patents. A more pejorative term for it is a patent troll, um, which was coined many years ago um, on the concept of somebody sitting beneath the bridge. And as the goats went across, they said, well, either you pay me or, or I eat you. And another name for it is a patent assertion entity. And these are people who buy up patents from inventors or from companies that develop patents um, and then take the advantage of of the purchase they've made. Yes. um, But again, even that sounds a bit pejorative. It sounds like um, carpet bagging or or something. But sometimes uh, entities, for very genuine reasons, such as large holding entities, companies decide that they don't want to do the patent licensing themselves they haven't got the time they haven't got the resources or they haven't got the skills to do it but they've got these assets 
uh, which should be valuable, but they're not exploiting. So there are companies such as Unwired Planet that are specialized in this sort of thing and therefore take the patents. And then there may be a profit-sharing arrangement. They may buy them outright uh, or whatever, uh, and then seek to assert them and to exploit them. There is an attempt by many on the, other, on the um, implementer side to portray this as somehow shady or not worthy of being supported by the courts and what have you but it's just another form of business. Uh, we're very lucky in this court that whenever I've been in a case and one of my opponents has sort of said, well, the plaintiff's uh, an MPE or a troll or a PAE, the judge normally puts his pen down and says, what's that got to do with what I have to decide? They're the people who own the patents. It doesn't matter where they got them from. They bought them lawfully, um, they own them, and they're entitled to uh, take advantage of their investments, uh, putting it simply. They are. I mean, the patent uh, system, the patent laws do have protections in certain areas where it's thought that society should benefit um, without being, if you like, held up. But that doesn't apply to telecommunications or, or, or the vast majority of patent areas. OK, well, look, your clients launched this legal action seven years ago, 2014. What were they complaining about? They had acquired a portfolio of patents um, and it's well known the portfolio of patents came from Ericsson. And they tried to interest or get the attention of a number of implementers in order to license them. Implementers meaning the people who actually make the mobile phones? Or the base stations. Yeah, the people that make the equipment. So um, after trying to get people to talk to them seriously about their licensing and whether or not they, they should be taking licenses, um, in the end, they ran out of patience, what have you, and they started the action. Uh, 10th of March, 2014. And this was action against Huawei and other companies originally? There were three entities that we sued at the time. There was Huawei, Samsung, and Google. Basically, your client, Unwired Planet, accused Huawei of refusing to take a FRAND license, and they wanted an injunction to prevent further infringement, but Huawei said that the standard essential patents were neither essential nor valid. There is an important distinction that one has to have here because it comes out in the Supreme Court case. What we actually sued for was infringement of the patents. Now, that is a straight, what we'd say, vanilla patent infringement case. Where it becomes different is that Huawei and the others would say, well, look, first of all, we don't think we're infringing. Secondly, we don't think your patents are valid. But if they are, um, we're entitled to a FRAND license. Um, and the question then became, once we'd established the validity and infringement of the patents, the question then became, what are the correct terms of the FRAND license? So was this all about money in the end? Was it simply an argument over whether the people who owned the patents were charging a fair and reasonable fee to the people who wanted to use them? It is about money, but it's slightly more complicated than that because I said that Etsy had never decided what I've never determined what FRAND is. The problem is one can look at it at several levels. One can look at it on an individual patent basis. One can look at it on a national basis. And one can look at it on a global basis, and one can look at it on a portfolio basis. Now, if you're going to have to sue for each and every patent in your portfolio, 
have it declared valid and infringed and then get the remuneration for that and do that not only in the UK, but for every country in the world, it then becomes absolutely impossible and practically impossible to assert your portfolio. So the real issue that arose in the Fran case, once we proved that uh, patents were valid infringement, is what are the terms of the license which NY Planet had to offer to the defendants? And the argument came, is it a single patent license? Is it a national license, i.e. in respect of all UK patents in the portfolio? Or is it a global license? Uh, we can demand a license for the whole of our portfolio or the whole of NY Planet's portfolio throughout the world. Although some of the patents in that portfolio must have been no use to anybody. Correct. But if you've got a large portfolio, some will be good, some will be bad. But you take a view of it and business people in a negotiation, if we weren't in the SEP world or the FRAND world, and I had a portfolio of patents and you wanted to license them, you might come along and you might say, well, that one's bad, that one's bad, etc. But in the end of the day, you'd say, well, you take your money, you pay your money, takes your choice. Some will be good. I only need one that's good to stop you. So therefore, you agree a price. You say you only need one that's good to stop you because Mr. Justice Burse delivered a judgment in 2017. It ran to 173 pages of A4. I won't ask you how big the uh, written arguments, the pleadings were, or how long the, the hearing uh, took, but you won. But you won because two of the five patents which were in dispute were found to be valid and essential. But that doesn't sound as if you won. That sounds as if you, you only got two out of five. Well, this is the whole issue. NY Planet had a portfolio of patents, and I think they had 19 patents which had been declared essential to Etsy. One of the things I should say is when you declare a patent essential, you declare the whole family. And in this context, that means patents for the same invention throughout the world. So you're declaring the whole family. NY Planet had succeeded on two of the patents. And in the normal run of affairs, you would get an injunction once you'd successfully sued. Even on one patent, you get an injunction. What happened here was that the argument was Huawei said, but I'm entitled to a FRAND license. And the question was, what is the scope of that license? And what Mr. Justice Burst decided was the scope of the license was what would be agreed between a willing licensor and a willing licensee when faced with the situation. And what he said was a willing licensor would not grant the patent for the one, sorry, a license for the pat one patent that had been bound to be valid and infringed or the two patents bound to be valid and infringed. He would say, no, I am entitled to an injunction. And if you want to have a license for it, you have to license my whole portfolio. And that is one of the illuminating quotes or memorable quotes from Mr. Justice Burse's judgment. You will recall that when he said, anything else would be madness. And he said that uh, a willing licensor and a willing licensee or two business people sitting down to discuss the licensing of these patents would only be talking about a portfolio license. They wouldn't talk about individual patent licenses, much less would they be talking about one patent license uh, for one patent in one jurisdiction. 
very practical approach to this, not a legalistic uh, point-scoring approach, but um, a business-oriented approach from the judge. Yes, but that comes out in the Supreme Court uh, as well when there were big arguments as to what Etsy meant when it said that you have to be prepared to offer Fran licenses and the arguments of our opponents were that it, it must be for the individual patent that had been found to be essential. And one of the things the Supreme Court said is that when Etsy initiated their IPR policy, they must have been taken to understand, because it was all industry players, that you know, normal licensing in this area took place on a portfolio basis. I mean, Joshua, that's one of the remarkable things about this. Uh, I cannot think, and I have seen lots of lots of brand licenses, SEP licenses between any sorts of players, all sorts of players. I, I have never seen a single patent license for one jurisdiction, let alone I've never seen a, a license for one jurisdiction. It is common practice that what happens in this industry is portfolio licensing. The remarkable thing was, in my view, was that what the defendants were arguing for was something that just didn't take place in the industry. And that's what Mr. Justice Burse and the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court all had in mind. Because you won all the way up. You won in the High Court in front of Mr. Justice Burse. Your opponents appealed to the Court of Appeal. Their appeal was dismissed. They appealed to the UK Supreme Court. Let's talk about the UK Supreme Court decision. What is the significance of the decision in broad terms, in terms of patent law? Well, although people refer to the Supreme Court decision under its name, Unwired Planet, it has to be borne in mind that actually there were two appeals that went up there. There was the Unwired Planet appeal. It was an appeal from a final decision. But there was also another case, which my firm had started, called Conversant Against Huawei. And that was the second round, if you like. And on that occasion, Huawei, having been bitten once, decided to take a, I'm not sure it's more aggressive, but decided to take a different tack. And this time they objected on the grounds of jurisdiction. And what they said was that this was a dispute which really should not be heard in the UK because the UK was, was only a, a very small part of Huawei's business and it should be more appropriately heard in other jurisdictions. Or alternatively, they said that the UK court should not well, I've got to say grant, should not determine global portfolios. And that was a separate tack. And that was an interim objection because the late Mr. Justice Henry Carr sadly died and um, great loss to our profession. He decided that the UK court did have power to do that. Uh, that went up to the Court of Appeal. And then Huawei applied to the Supreme Court for permission to appeal. And the two appeals got joined together since they were thought to raise uh, very similar issues. Just by way of uh, side there, we'd started another action on behalf of another client by then, and we'd sued Apple. That was on behalf of a client called Optus, and then Apple applied to intervene in the Supreme Court, and they were allowed to intervene in the Supreme Court. So we had arranged against us some pretty heavyweight opponents. And interestingly, Ericsson and Qualcomm also intervened, only obviously they intervened on our side because they're big patent holders. Sorry, um, I've now forgot what your original question was. Well, let me just make an observation on that. I mean, this is very much an international type of litigation. Um, Lord Sales, one of the justices of the Supreme Court who found in 
favour of your client, gave an interesting speech recently, and he said one of the fundamental distinctions between law and technology is geographical impact. Put simply, legal regimes are national, while technologies are increasingly global. And you can see that in this case, because Etsy, after all, is a French organisation, and the agreement between the members of it is presumably governed by French law. Yes, it is. It is governed by French law. But what is interesting, and what we've slightly skipped over, but it's worth stating, is Etsy is the European organisation. But there's something called 3GPP, another an acronym, which stands for Third Generation Partnership Project, Third Generation Partnership Project. And that is actually a combination of seven standard-setting organisations. So you've got the standard-setting organisation for China, Japan, I think Korea, America, the US, I should say, and another. And these projects these days, once you've got to 3G, uh, they were 3GPP projects. And what that means is that you're not just getting cooperation on a world, uh, a European basis, but you get cooperation and standardization on a worldwide basis. So 3GPP has been primarily responsible for 3G, 4G, and now 5G. And if you think about it, and it is worth thinking about because people say that the IPR policies of the SSOs has not really worked. If you think about the developments of mobile telephones over the last 20 years, and Joshua, you and I are old enough to remember when you first had the brick and the limited um, abilities that that had. And now, say, with 5G, I mean, even at the moment, you can watch television programs on your handset. But with 5G, it is going to be remarkable And all that development has taken place in the last 20 years. And what also it means is you can get on your plane in the UK and go to the farthest reaches of the world. And when you land, you turn on your telephone, your telephone will pick up where you are um, and you can start sending messages, making phone calls, um, downloading whatever you want to do, etc. And that has all come about because of the 3GPP projects. And that is what we're talking about. So it is international. But at the same time, as you said, patents are national. And the question is, how do you deal with those? And what that segues into, and it comes back to the point you asked me about the Supreme Court, one of the issues, one of the major issues in the Supreme Court was how do you categorize what is the claim that was being made by Unwired Planet and Conversant? And our opponents try to categorize it as sort of international coercion or international force, enforcement of patents. That is not as you know as stupid as it sounds because the US does regard it in that way. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But what um, the Supreme Court upheld or decided or what have you is that the correct way to categorize this is it's an, actually an action for infringement of a UK patent. The issue is that when the defendant says, ah, but you have to offer me a license, what is the terms of that license that um, the patentee has to offer? And that's where the argument comes as to whether it's national or global. Let me quote you something else that Lord Sales said. He said, our approach to legal doctrines and concepts has to reflect the reality of the world in which we operate. In this case, we interpreted the Etsy licensing rules in a manner which acknowledged the worldwide nature of telecommunications technologies and markets. But Lord Sales went on to say that there were difficulties because, for example, if you accept that one national court 
is able to decide the terms of a friend license on a global portfolio, the next question is which court should do so? And the dispute that you were involved in the Unwired Planet case could have arisen in any country in relation to which there was a valid patent in the portfolio. Should national courts be seeking to work out which court between them might be best placed to decide the friend terms for the portfolio? Or is it to be left to the parties? To what extent should the English courts have reservations about implementing the license terms set by other national courts? Uh, these questions show that global technology has put pressure on the traditional rules of conflicts and of laws and the concept of comity between the courts. He's right, isn't he? Well, he's absolutely right. Putting cards on the table these days, it can be something of a, a rush who's going to get to the right court first. Um, and that in itself creates issues. And at the moment, one of the big issues uh, people in this area face with is that the Chinese courts, because four of the six largest manufacturers of handsets, certainly, are Chinese these days. So you've got companies, Huawei, Xiaomi, Oppo, um, and Vivo, and the other two non-Chinese companies are Samsung and Apple. But you know, China plays a significant role in this. Uh, and the Chinese companies, one can understand it, do not particularly like being told what royalties they're going to pay by a UK court. So there have been a few cases at the moment where companies have gone to China, the Chinese courts, to ask them to set friend rates. Some have done it just for the Chinese jurisdiction, and one company has done it asking the Chinese to set a worldwide rate. Now, historically, China, and one can think of many reasons for this, but China have set very low rates compared with what has been set in other jurisdictions. So you have got this conflict. And interestingly enough, last week, Lord Justice Arnold, who is one of the main patent judges, he's now in the Court of Appeal, but he's got a lifetime in patent law and has dealt with a lot of these cases, has suggested that the way around this, and it's not, this is not new, but I think there's added impetus to it, is that Etsy should put in place compulsory arbitration of these issues so that instead of everybody running off to the court to determine it, you would have an arbitration panel who would determine these issues and then you'd get rid of a lot of these jurisdictional disputes. And that would be on a worldwide basis because when you had an arbitration agreement at the outset, you would say, I suppose, what legal system would apply or which panel of arbitrators would deal with it. And then you wouldn't be you know, seeing which country is going to be dealing with this first and who can get to which court first. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's lots of arbitration bodies that one could think that could do this and one can set one up specifically to do it with you know, experienced judges, retired judges, experts, etc. But the problem is being cynical is query whether both sides of this argument, I mean, it sounds obvious, you know, it's the solution to it, might put a lot of lawyers out of business, but nobody ever had much sympathy for lawyers. But arbitration would be the way to go. But if one's cynical, one might say that, you know, certain sides do not want arbitration because then they can no longer practice hold up or hold out. I won't say which side is more likely to do that, but you can make your own judgment. So it's a question of whether the, the, the companies, whether the, your clients or whoever's clients it is, are prepared to go along with this. But in the meantime, you've really got national courts in different parts of the world, I wouldn't say competing for which one should be the one uh, who's the most influential, 
But certainly, um, if the UK Supreme Court can give what I'm sure you would say is not just a, a correct ruling, but one that shows respect for how people do business in this area, then presumably what they say is going to be taken very seriously by judges in other jurisdictions. It is. I mean, you know, the, the history of the English legal system, if you want to study it and goes back many years, you had rival courts um, and different courts. And the way courts attracted business was to say, well, if you want justice, come to us and we'll give you all the justice you want. So courts have to be attractive. The Chancery Division competed with the King's Bench Division to act more fairly. It did, yes, and therefore attracted more business to it. Now, I'm not saying that our judges are in that business, but once you find a favourable court, and you can see it in America. I mean, the Eastern District of Texas became notorious as a patent holder's you know, paradise, and everybody would run to the Eastern District of Texas for their cases. And now I read that I think the Northern District of Texas is taking over, whereas Apple would always sue in California for obvious reasons. So you always want to go to what do you think is the most favourable court or the court which at least give you a fair hearing and justice for your case. So at the moment, the UK court is in that position because the unwired planet and conversant decisions. Germany has always been considered a good court, a jurisdiction in which to uh, take your case. Interestingly enough, though, America, the United States courts, I should say, had set their face against doing this type of worldwide determination of FRAND because they regard it as enforcing non-US patents. And that was one of the big arguments in the Supreme Court because what they said you were doing was effectively enforcing patents from other jurisdictions. And that comes back to the categorization of the case that I talked about where the UK court said, no, we're not. We're just deciding that the UK patent's valid and infringed, and if you want not to have an injunction against you, we're determining what is the licence that you are going to have to take. Now, Chief Justice O'Malley, who was, I'm not sure she still is, but um, Kathleen O'Malley. Chief Justice of the US Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. The Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit is the, uh, because um, the US is a federal system, obviously, sorry, and it has uh, various courts in, a, in various jurisdictions, but all patent appeals in order to provide some consistency throughout the US system, all patent appeals go to the CAFC, the Court of Appeal for the Federal Circuit. And she made a comment that in the light of the Unwired Planet case, maybe the US courts would have to reconsider how they approach these friend issues. That's interesting because the US courts have traditionally not looked outside the United States for precedents in areas which the, their own courts haven't developed the law. And for her to say that the Unwired Planet case is going to be influential in the United States is quite something. It is quite something, but it just shows the international nature of this litigation. I mean, in the Supreme Court, uh, we made reference to German cases, Dutch cases, well, I should say both sides did, Chinese cases, Japanese cases, and US cases. And they were all considered uh, not precedents as such, but to be of... Influ uh, influential. Real, influential, yes. The uh, considerations of the other jurisdictions. Because it must be quite difficult. You, you know, you're a court, you're dealing with something new. Um, you're going to have to decide what you say is law. You do look around to other parts of the world to see what they've done, if they've been there first, and to see if you can pick up any tips. 
Yes, but and also one of the arguments raised by our opponents was that the UK court was out of step because no other court would do what the UK court had done. Now, actually, we, we showed that that wasn't quite you know, as black and white as they were portraying, but there was no doubt that um, these issues have been wrestled with by other courts, and it is inter- interesting for our courts to see how they're dealt with. Having been in Europe for so long, I don't know whether it would continue, countries like Germany and the Netherlands were slightly more than influential. I'm not saying they're binding, but of course our courts would see how their fellow judges in Europe dealt with these issues. Of course, one of the advantages or disadvantages, depending which side you're on, of cases in a common law jurisdiction uh, like ours is that the loser has to pay the costs of the winner normally. And presumably there was a huge amount of money at stake and, and, and your clients and whoever ultimately owns the company and takes the risk and so on, uh, was risking quite a lot of money. There was a lot of money turning on this case, quite apart from uh, the, the, the value of the patents and the, and, and the, 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 the royalties or, or payments, whatever sort they were, uh, the costs must have been very large. The costs were large, and that is one of the considerations that you know, anybody in this area has to take into account. Well, it was uh, well known that uh, Unwired Planet's total costs were in excess of 20 million, and not all of those were recoverable from our opponents because of various factors that went on. And you don't necessarily win on every point in every case. So you have to bear some of the costs yourself. So you are talking about huge sums of money. And before everybody makes a comment, not all of that came to EIP. A lot of it went to the barristers and the experts. But what about the the broader question of the role of patents in today's society? Um, Is it a way for um, clever people who spot which way something's going to get a monopoly and make a lot of money? Well, it is. And there are entities that buy up patents uh, and then seek to assert them. And not just in this area, but in all sorts of other areas. And to that extent, you know, you can say it's a waste of resources and why should they? But a patent is a patent is a patent. And it's been granted by the authorities on the basis that it's a new invention. And uh, there's nothing in the law or nothing one can say in commerce that says that in order to have a valid patent, I have to be actually a manufacturer of a, a product in the same way that people buy up copyrights and sometimes exploit them. So the Beatles sell their back catalogs and then somebody seeks to exploit it. Um, in that respect, it's no different in the area of patents. But music is one thing. What about something rather more sensitive, something that concerns us all, and that's vaccines, for example. You know, it's said that if you have the good fortune to work out the best vaccine against COVID-19, you should share it with everybody and everybody should be able to manufacture it without paying any fees to the inventor. Well, there's two things there. I mean, first of all, I think AstraZeneca um, and the Oxford vaccine, I think that is being made available at cost price. And AstraZeneca, certainly, I don't think is doing it for a profit. I'm not sure the same applies to Pfizer and Moderna. But you come back to the patent bargain. Um, People research and put money into it. And to get a new invention in the area of pharmaceuticals, certainly, does take a heck of a lot of investment. And also, it is remarkable that we managed to get vaccines as quickly as we did in this area. And one can say, would we have done it if people did not have the financial incentive? But patents are only one part of it. Um, The problem with pharmaceuticals and what have you is that you can make the invention 
on a lab basis, but then doing the research to put, scale it up, doing the clinical trials, etc., takes a heck of a lot of investment. And there are some statistics. And I think if you talk to the pharmaceutical industry, you'll find that something like one in a hundred products actually make it into people's arms or bodies at any one stage because of the amount that falls by the wayside. And there's no recruitment for that. So if you spend a lot of money on scaling up a product and then doing clinical trials, and at the end of the day, you're showing that it's not efficacious, doesn't have significant effect or not safe, then that money goes down the drain. So it is a bit of a, a crapshoot, the whole thing. So, um, you know, the rewards can be significant. Now, whether or not that should apply in the case of uh, vaccines is a, a much more difficult moral argument. But one of the things that I think that comes out is everybody talks about suspending patents and spending intellectual property, and that's a very easy target. But I think that is not the problem here. The real problem is actually the know-how which is involved in manufacturing these products. And by that, I mean, you know, it's like a recipe. You know, you could say, how do I make a cake? And I say, well, take some flour and eggs and sugar, and there you go. But I don't tell you how to mix it, the order to mix it, what heat you've got to put it in, what size cake tin, et cetera, et cetera. Now, think about doing that for pharmaceutical and scaling it up so that you can manufacture it on an industrial scale. The amount of know-how and the amount of techniques you've got, and unless you get the cooperation of the pharmaceutical companies on that level, then you can have all the patents you want and all the free licenses you want, but you're not going to be able to manufacture it. So you have to offer the incentives, I think. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. I can see that patents are going to be here forever. They're very old, but they're going to carry on to the future. I'm sure you will continue working on, on patents. There'll be plenty of work for the lawyers to do. But I think we really need to leave it there. Gary Moss, Head of Litigation at EIP, thank you very much indeed. And that does bring us to the end of this first episode of EIP Talks, presented by me, Joshua Rosenberg. EIP Talks will be back with another episode next month. To make sure you don't miss an edition, you can subscribe to EIP Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more patent updates, you can follow EIP on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you very much for listening.